0: This morning's scripture, Mark 2, verses 13 to 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And then as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners.
1: Well, good morning again, uh, everyone. It is good to be with you uh, this morning as we continue our time in the book of Mark. And this morning is uh, probably the last uh, that we will spend in Mark for uh, the rest of this year. Uh, Next week, we're gonna take... um a few weeks to, as we begin the season of Advent to look at uh, Christmas and, and prepare our hearts for Christmas and, and the incarnation as well. And so this morning's text is a, an appropriate one for us uh, as we come off the heels of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, of course, is uh, a time where uh, traditionally a lot of people eat a lot of food, and, and recognizing that... Uh, uh, Some of us may have had rough Thanksgivings, lonely Thanksgivings. At the same time, at least in theory, uh, Thanksgiving is a day that is set aside for a lot of food and for gathering with those that are closest to us. And this morning's text is one that centers on having a lot of food. Jesus having a large meal with some people. But surprisingly, and this is where the rub comes from the Pharisees, that Jesus is not eating this with people like him, but instead he is eating it with tax collectors, and sinners, those who are on the fringes of religious society. And so as we dive into this text this morning, I think it's appropriate with us, uh, uh, last week not spending time in Mark, uh, for us to just remind ourselves of where we're at in the, the context of this book. Mark is the shortest of the Gospels, but in its brevity, it packs this powerful message and it's forcing us to ask the question, who is Jesus? Jesus. Every story in the first eight chapters of Mark, forcing us to ask this question, who is Jesus, who is Jesus, who is Jesus, culminating with the disciples actually being asked this question by Jesus himself when he says, who do you say that I am? And the answer Mark is forcing us to answer, or the the answer he wants us to to give in, in all of these stories is that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the long-awaited king, the one who will deliver God's people, who will bring God's people into the long-awaited kingdom of God. And yet significantly, and this is what the, the second half of the book of Mark is all about, that kingdom, the fact that Jesus is the king, does not at all look the way that we expect it would look. Jesus brings the kingdom in a completely unexpected way, not with a crown of glory, but instead at the cross of shame. And so in Mark 1, we see Jesus' popularity begin to skyrocket. People from everywhere are coming to see him as he's ministering in Galilee. He's being swarmed by these crowds, culminating in the final verse of, of Mark chapter 1, verse 45. It says this, "But he, this leper that Jesus heals, but he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places." and people were coming to him from every quarter. Here at the end of Mark chapter one, Jesus's popularity as at an all-time high, but significantly, the crowds don't seem all that interested in Jesus's purpose. They instead are more interested in seeing Jesus perform miracles. They're more interested in seeing Jesus cast out demons. Very few people are actually interested in his message, Jesus's message of the kingdom of God. And this leads to an increasing tension between Jesus and the religious establishment, the religious leaders of the day. And that's where we're looking uh, here in, in Mark chapter two. We're seeing this growing tension, this growing opposition between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. This is the second of five stories spanning Mark chapter two verse one through Mark chapter three verse six, where we see this tension, this opposition between Jesus and the religious leaders continue to increase. And last week, we—or not last week, two weeks ago—we saw this radical declaration from Jesus about the kind of kingdom that he brings. It's a kingdom that is primarily concerned with deliverance from sin. It is a kingdom that is is concerned with our our physical well-being, but it's primarily concerned with the greatest need facing us, and that is our deliverance from sin. And what's more is that Jesus says that this kingdom that is coming, that brings this forgiveness of sins, will be brought about by himself. In fact, he is the one who has power and authority to forgive sins, to deliver people through his death on the cross. This morning's text gives us a bit more insight into what this kingdom is like. It's it's describing who Jesus is coming to bring into his kingdom, who Jesus wants in his kingdom, what Jesus wants to bring this message to fruition for. It's a text that is likely familiar with us, and as we uh, see the, the title of this sermon, The Friend of Sinners, it's probably not a phrase. That is all that shocking to us. It's not going to likely raise any of our eyebrows. We've heard this. We have songs talking about how Jesus is the friend of sinners. And yet, in Jesus' words and Jesus' actions here in this text, we, we see that he is making a startling declaration of what his kingdom is going to be like, of who is actually welcome in his kingdom, of who he actually comes to deliver and to make a part of the kingdom of God. And I hope that we'll see this morning that this is a declaration that is meant for us. It is a declaration meant for you and for me, that Jesus came for people like you. And so the question, of course, as we look at this text is, will you come to him? Jesus came for people like you, people like me. And the question as we look at this text is, will we come to him? Will we find our rest in him? Will we submit ourselves to him and allow ourselves to be delivered by God? This text is, is, describes this in really two parts. It looks at the two different groups of people. That are, that are in this story, that are in this world, two vastly different types of people that Jesus comes to bring this message of the kingdom to. And so that's what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna look at this, uh, this text that really in two parts, looking at the two different types of people that Jesus comes to bring this message of the kingdom to. So as we approach God's word, let's let's pray and ask for his blessing upon our time together. Lord Jesus, as we gather together this morning, uh, I do ask that you would give us fresh eyes to see this text, that we would see how offensive it is, and yet how much more beautiful it is as well. God, I imagine that there are people here um, that are with us that have hearts that range across the board, some with hearts that, that mirror the hearts of Levi far from you. Hearts that, that don't really want anything to do with you, wondering if this news of mercy is, is too good to be true. And on the other end of the spectrum, there might be some with hearts here that, that really see that there, there's no need for the gospel for them, that their lives are pretty good, that they don't need uh, news of deliverance, that they don't need a physician And so, God, I I ask that you would give us eyes to see the truth of this passage according to your Holy Spirit, that you would give us a mind that recognizes our great need before you. God, that you would give us a heart that bursts with joy at the notion of your mercy, not just for others, for those who need it more, but for ourselves as well, for people like me. God, I'm just reminded of, as we look at this text, I'm, I'm just reminded of Paul's words that he is the worst of sinners. And indeed, God, I confess that so also am I. And so, God, I just pray that you would give us ears to hear your voice this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The first part of this text is uh, really setting the stage, setting the scene for Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders, uh, Jesus and the scribes, that's found in verses 16 and 17. And so we're going to look at the first section, 13 through 15, here uh, as we begin. So please follow along as I read aloud. He went out again beside the sea, and all the, crowds, all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined a table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, let's assume that the events of these few verses, 13 through 15, take place shortly after the verses that we read a couple weeks ago, verses 1 through 12. Verses 1 through 12, Jesus is teaching a crowd, but it's a very small crowd because they are found actually in a house, a one or two room house are all the people that can see Jesus. And so maybe this even takes place the same day. Jesus leaves Simon's house, this place where he's been staying in Capernaum, and he goes out to the Sea of Galilee because he has this mission. He has this focus in his ministry to proclaim the word of God, and so he decides that he's going to go to a place where more people can hear his teaching. Now, we don't know the specific content of his seaside sermon here, but what we do see is this general focus that's given to us in Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. All of Jesus's sermons, according to the gospel of Mark, focus on one thing, and that's that the kingdom of God is coming. So hear these words from Mark chapter 1. This is the message of the kingdom. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the the focus of Jesus's seaside sermon here in this text, that he is declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand and he's telling people to repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus, in spite of his popularity, in spite of how much people love seeing him perform miracles, is completely focused on his father's plan, on this message of the kingdom. He's in the face of crowds that will soon desire to make him a king, just like Caesar. He is in the face of the religious elite that are increasingly concerned with this message that Jesus is proclaiming. Jesus instead just proclaims the message of the God. Of God, that the kingdom of God is at hand and that he will deliver those who come to him into that new kingdom. Now, taken it on its own, it's a pretty uneventful statement. It's a pretty uh, common statement, that or, or at least it would be, this sermon would not be earth shattering if it were not for the verse, uh, uh, the content of verse 14. Verse 14 tells us a little bit more about one of the recipients that's a part of this message, of this declaration that the kingdom of God is at hand. In Mark chapter 2, verse 14, we see that Jesus invites the tax collector Levi to come with him. Now, if you notice the, the order, the, the the timing of verse fourteen in relation to verse thirteen is ambiguous. Thirteen and fourteen are set aside, and, and verses fifteen through seventeen take place at a later time. So we have fourteen and fifteen, or excuse me, uh, thirteen and fourteen, and they're describing uh, this, this moment where Levi comes to faith. And I think, as we read this text, verse fourteen actually comes before the content of verse thirteen. That Jesus is on his way from Capernaum to the Sea of Galilee to proclaim this message, to proclaim this teaching of the kingdom of God. And he stops on his way out of town at the tax collecting booth of this man named Levi. On his way out of town, he stops, he sees Levi, and he calls him to follow him. He doesn't say to Levi, hey, I want you to join the crowd. Hey, I think that you should hear this message I'm about to proclaim. He stops, and he looks Levi right in the eyes, and in the exact same way that he called Simon, Andrew, James, and John in the previous chapter, he says, follow me. Now, this is a a significant statement. Uh, Look at at how this compares to Mark chapter 1 and the calling of Simon and the other fishermen. It says this, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. So in one sense, this call of Levi here is the exact same uh, situation, the exact same thing that happened in a previous uh, chapter, in, in Mark chapter 1, and very similar in its context. And yet, at the same time, it's completely different than the calling of the four fishermen. These fishermen, in Mark chapter 1, were unlearned. They, they weren't religious scholars, but they were still devout Jews. They were still faithful Jews. They still pursued the God of Israel. They still desired to be a part of God's promises, but that's not the case for Levi. Levi was a tax collector. He was, uh, the tax collector, of course, was a nearly universally despised office in a way that it would even make uh, the, the jokes that we say at the IRS's expense today look tame look mild, and actually look like we were best friends with IRS agents. In ancient Rome, there were two types of, ca- of taxes that were taken. There were general taxes. That's what we tend to think of when we think of taxes. We think of property taxes, income taxes, state taxes, and on and on. These were relatively clear set numbers that if you produce a crop that, you know, uh, uh, consisted of a certain amount of, of, of harvest, then you would have to give a certain percentage. It was a very clear number of what you were to give for those taxes, and there wasn't all that much corruption with these general taxes. But there was a second type of tax that was very common in the Roman Empire, and that was a different story. You see not only did the Roman empire tax its citizens in a general sense they also had a sense a system of taxes set up for the transportation of goods along its roads throughout the Roman empire taxes would be collected on goods that use certain roads on tax uh, on goods that would enter into a new territory of the empire on uh, uh, goods that would cross certain bridges, even here specifically in Capernaum, there would be a place where before you entered into Capernaum, the fish that you collected on the Gal- uh, on the Sea of Galilee would be taxed on your way back home. Now, the way that these taxes work uh, were inherently unjust. Instead of just having uh, government officials collect taxes at a certain rate, these type of taxes were. Collected in a very different way. Government officials would actually bid out the right to collect taxes to whoever wanted to submit a bid. Whoever would offer the most money would then be the one who was now the tax collector. So let's say that Jordan wants to get into the business of collecting, collecting taxes in Capernaum. And remember, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago where Capernaum is located, it's located on one of the primary roads in the Roman Empire connecting Damascus to Egypt. It is right on the border between two different territories. It is a very strategic location, a place where you can get very, very rich if you play your cards right. So I submit my bid to the Roman official, Herod Antipas here, and and let's say I want to buy the right to collect taxes here for the Roman Empire for the next three years. And I say that I'm willing to pay $40,000 each year for the next three years for the right to be the one who collects these taxes. Let's say that's the highest amount that anyone bids. And so I now am on the hook to Herod and the Roman Empire for $40,000 each year for the next three years. But let's say I collect $50,000 a year or let's say that I collect 60,000 a year, 70,000 a year, or whatever the, whatever the amount is, I get to keep the difference, it's all mine. And so Rome actually is willing to turn a blind eye to whatever way that people would get this money out of others, provided they got their amount, amount that was agreed upon. As long as they get their 40,000 a year from me, they don't care how I get my money. Now, let's say I I actually want to make sure that I get my money. And so I'm going to have to take a a nice long look in the mirror and come to terms with the fact that I'm not all that intimidating of a person, that I can't shake someone down to actually make them pay taxes. And so I say, all right, well, I'm going to need some help for this. I'm going to need to hire some people to help me out in collecting these taxes. And so I place an ad in the local classifieds and say, hey, if you want to be a tax collector with me, why don't you go ahead and sign up? And now I got this little posse surrounding me of people that are going to help me collect taxes here in Capernaum. The only problem is, yes, people are going to pay their taxes because they're scared of me. Only problem is now I have an even larger payroll. And so now I have to charge even more just to make ends meet, just to make things go even but because I have the muscle, I can charge people more. And so this is the the context that would take place throughout the Roman Empire, that people would bid for the right to become a tax collector and then they would gouge people, they would rip people off in order to make themselves rich. You see how easily this system would be corrupted. Corrupted. Tax collectors are despised the world over in the Roman Empire. Ancient Greeks, non-Christians, ancient Greeks would actually satire the reputation of tax collectors and say that the first time that someone meets a a. A genuine, honest, well working tax collector, they're gonna build a monument to them because they, it's just so rare to have this happen. Tax collectors were corrupt, they took advantage of people, they had mob like enforcers to back up their demands on the people of the day, and people despised them. But for the Jewish people, it was a double despising. They despised them for, uh, for, one, just what I said, all of the immoral practices, the corruption that took place, but for a Jew to become a tax collector was horrific. Jews who became tax collectors were excommunicated from the synagogue. They weren't able to worship God. They weren't able to fellowship with other believers. Their witness wasn't allowed in court because they couldn't be considered trustworthy. Jewish tradition forbade lying, but it said it was okay to lie to a tax collector because of how wicked they were. The families of tax collectors were disgraced. Even touching a tax collector would make you religiously impure. Going into a tax collector's home or having a tax collector come to your home would render the entire house unclean. Our text tells us this man's name is Levi. Levi is a Jewish name. It makes it very clear that this man is not just despicable to the people of Capernaum because of his corruption. He's also despicable to the people because he had abandoned them. He was considered a traitor. He had abandoned their God all for the pursuit of money. And the people in this crowd that are following Jesus that day, they would have been well acquainted with Levi. They would have known exactly who Levi was. They would have known him as their very own sheriff of Nottingham. This was the man who took advantage of them this man who stole from them, threatened them, who got rich off of all of their hard work. So imagine the shock on everyone's face, including Levi, when Jesus is on his way to the Sea of Galilee, and he stops by this tax booth, and he stops and he looks Levi right in the eye. I imagine you're a Levi. Before Jesus says anything, what do you think Jesus is going to do? Jesus has got this crowd at his back. He's walking. Jesus has been proclaiming this idea of a kingdom that is coming, that he's bringing this kingdom of God. And here is this despised tax collector. Jesus has got a crowd at his back. And Levi is possibly thinking, I don't want to read too much into the text. Levi is possibly thinking, oh my goodness, is this the moment where Jesus is going to usher in his kingdom by beating me up? But that's not exactly what happens, as we know the story. Instead of threatening him, Jesus does something that is actually far more costly to Levi, far costlier than than leaving him for dead. He simply looks at Levi with eyes that pierce his soul, with eyes that, that see everything about Levi. Every dark crevice of his life is exposed before Jesus, and Jesus says to him anyway, follow me. Follow me. And Levi, of course, has got to be shocked. The crowds have got to be shocked. And yet Levi, he follows. He responds with the same sort of unqualified obedience that the four fishermen did in the previous chapter. He leaves behind his tax collecting booth. That's one of the key differences here between his calling and the calling of of the fishermen. The fishermen left their business, their fishing business in the hands of their father. They could go back to it if they desired but not Levi. Levi was choosing a completely different way of life. He might have actually still owed the Roman Empire what he had promised to give to them. And he leaves and follows Jesus anyway. He hears Jesus proclaim this message of the kingdom, this message of repentance, this message of faith, of deliverance, of salvation. And he reaches a conclusion that everything he's been told his entire life is wrong. He has been told that in order for him to be a part of God's kingdom, he's going to have to live an impossibly high moral life, one that he could never attain. He has been told his entire life that if God is going to ever accept him, a tax collector, he's first going to have to clean up his life. He's going to have to get his accounts in order. He's going to have to work his tail off in order to pay God back for all of what he has done wrong. If he did that for decades— year after year, tirelessly serving God, then God might consider letting a tax collector like him enter into his presence. But there, by the sea, he hears a message. It's a message that does include repentance, that he did certainly have to leave behind his wickedness. He had to leave behind his corrupt ways. He had to make restitution if he were able. But he also heard that he had been delivered from the impossibly heavy burden of his sin and his shame by Jesus. And so as they're heading back to Capernaum, Levi's life is completely changed. And as was custom, he throws this big party for for people uh, celebrating his salvation. And and as you probably know, a party needs people. You can't have a party without uh, people invited. There's only one problem. No one wants to go to Levi's party. No one wants to be around Levi because of what we said earlier about this stigma of tax collectors. And so Levi invites the only person or the only people that he knows. He invites Jesus, and he invites all of his friends, all of these other people that are excommunicated from the synagogue, all these other tax collectors and sinners, people who the, the, the religious people want nothing to do with. And so the only people who know him, those people who are like what he was once, Those who are not a part of the synagogue, those who are considered to be unclean by the religious Jews, these, to use a modern term, these secular people, these people who want nothing to do with Christianity, with religiosity, these are the people he invites because he doesn't know who else to invite to this party. Now, what can we learn from these verses? What can we learn about Jesus and about this kingdom that he comes to bring from these verses? Well, first, it's a message that we have undoubtedly heard before, but it bears repeating. Jesus comes to for the sinner. Jesus comes for the sinner. The Bible doesn't minimize the wickedness of Levi here. It doesn't minimize all the wrong that he has done. Levi, for years, has been worshiping himself. He's been figuratively sacrificing others at the altar of his own greed. He has made enemies. He has taken advantage of a corrupt system. He has stepped on the throats of others in order to get ahead. And Jesus doesn't gloss over this fact. But he says that Levi's wickedness is nothing compared to the mercy of God. And so he says, follow me. And Levi does exactly like that. The call of the gospel is for people like Levi or people like you and me. If we continue the, the text, uh, the last two verses tell us that that's not the only type of person that Jesus comes for. Take a look at verses 16 and 17. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with, tax collectors, or with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Now, as one would expect, based off of the cultural attitude toward tax collectors, the, the scribes of the Pharisees, they're just dumbfounded. They, they can't understand what Jesus is doing. They can't fathom that Jesus, this well-respected teacher, this miracle worker, this person who continues to proclaim the coming kingdom of God, is voluntarily associating with people like Levi, that he's associating with Levi's friends, the Pharisees were one of many sects of, uh, of Judaism in the first century, and they were without a doubt the most popular. Pharisees were known for their commitment to moral, upright living. They encouraged other people to live holy lives, to live set-apart lives. They actually devoted themselves not just to Scripture. They also devoted themselves to oral tradition. They believed that the oral tradition they espoused was actually handed down from God to Moses at the exact same time as the, the written law. And so they followed this wholeheartedly. They were unbelievably strict in their moral stances, and they believed that God would bless the people if they would just live lives of holiness and purity. That if, if we really want God's blessing, then we have to live lives where we are so set apart from wickedness, that we are so holy, so pure, then God will bless us. Now, this is, of course, the reason why they're so upset with Jesus. They're so upset with Jesus' association with Levi and these other tax collectors, they saw Jesus' voluntary association with them as this disregard for God's law, even though it wasn't. What's more, in the first century uh, in the Middle East, and and even to some extent today, there was this greater significance placed on the idea of eating with someone. Eating with someone was a statement or a declaration uh, of far more than just sharing food. It was a declaration of friendship. It was a declaration of relationship that I am one of you. And so for Jesus here to be eating with these tax collectors, with these sinners, for this famous miracle worker, this famous teacher to be eating with people like Levi, it was interpreted by those surrounding Jesus as Jesus essentially saying, I don't care. And God doesn't care how wicked you are. In fact, I approve of it. That's the way people interpreted Jesus' eating with Levi and these tax collectors. And so the scribes approach Jesus' disciples. And and it's interesting, they don't approach Jesus. They approach the disciples. Probably because the disciples are just as uh, uncomfortable in that setting as the Pharisees are. They approach Jesus' disciples and they say, what on earth is Jesus doing? What on earth is Jesus thinking? And before they can respond, Jesus himself leans away from the table. He leans back from the table, this fellowship, this party that's going on, and he turns and he looks at them and says, let me talk to you. Let me explain what's happening here. And he describes his focus, his purpose in ministry. And he does it with this well-known proverb. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Well-known proverb, one that we could all say, hey, yeah, that makes sense. You know, you don't go to the doctor necessarily when you are healthy. You go to the doctor when you are sick. It's not a, a shocking statement, one that the Pharisees themselves would have said, okay, I, I agree with that. It's common sense. And then yet Jesus goes a step further here and he applies that statement to our state before God. He says, therefore, if the, if the healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do, Therefore, I have come not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. In other words, I am here for those who recognize how far they are from God. But in doing this, Jesus is implying something else. In saying this, he's not just saying that he's coming for people like the tax collectors and sinners. He's making a declaration of the Pharisees' own hearts as well. He's implying that the Pharisees themselves are in the same boat as the tax collectors and the sinners, even if they don't recognize it. In fact, their commitment to morality, their commitment to, uh, to purity, which was once admirable, has now become the disease. This is the stumbling block that is keeping them from embracing the mercy of God. Their obsession with holiness has actually inoculated them to the mercy of God, to the gospel, against the good news of what God has come to do for them. And now they are blind to their need. You see, by declaring that Jesus did not come for the righteous, but instead for the unrighteous, he's not saying that he hates the Pharisees. He's not saying that he hates the self-righteous people like the Pharisees. Instead, what he's saying is that he desperately hopes that they'll wake up, that they themselves will come to their senses, that they will see the kingdom of God is for them too, but it starts by recognizing that they are deluding themselves into thinking that their obsession with morality is what is going to earn them the kingdom of God. And you see, that's the, the second, the second section is teaching us that. Jesus doesn't just come for the, the sinner. Jesus also comes for the self righteous. Jesus comes for the self righteous. It's so easy to pass condemnation on the Pharisees when we read this text without realizing Jesus died for them too. Jesus died for sinners who look like Levi. And he, looked, he died for sinners that looked like the scribes. Those who are so consumed with their own righteousness that they can't see their need for the gospel. You see, the Bible doesn't minimize the sin of Levi, it doesn't delude us into thinking that the people who think that they're so good that they don't need God don't need God either. The Bible holds both of those truths in tension. It says that they need mercy from God, just like those who are like Levi and other tax collectors. Jesus comes for sinners Like us, regardless of whether we trend toward the people like Levi and the tax collectors, or whether we trend toward the self-righteous. He came for people like us. The question is, what will we do with that information? What will we do with this news of the gospel? You see, for this text, it's relatively short, it's relatively straightforward, but there's actually quite a bit going on here. If you look closely at this text, there's five different groups of people that are interacting with Jesus. And the five different groups of people all interact with Jesus in a very different way. And I think that that's looking at these five groups is helpful for us as we understand how this text can apply to our lives today. So the first group is this, the crowd. The crowd is following Jesus this entire time. They continue to be amazed by Jesus and his teaching, and yet they show no real concern for his message, no real concern for this idea of repentance, of this idea of radically following God, of throwing themselves wholeheartedly into God's plan. Maybe that's you. Maybe you find yourself at a place where you have a superficial relationship with God. You have a superficial relationship with the church, but there's no depth there. That you find yourself in a place where you ignore parts of the gospel, that you ignore parts of the Bible that you don't like, and you just keep Jesus at an arm's length. If you find yourself in a place like the crowds, this passage is a warning. It's It's a text saying, just like what Jesus says here to the Pharisees, that this call of the gospel, his declaration of the kingdom, you must take it seriously. And so follow the example of people like Levi, who radically followed Jesus. Another group here is Levi and those who are like him. Levi and those who are like him. Levi is despised in the eyes of those around him. He's not welcomed here in the synagogue. And if we're honest, he probably doesn't care that he's not welcome in the synagogue. He's too busy counting his money to say, I'm I'm torn up by the fact that the Jews won't let me worship with them. But then he hears the gospel. He hears this message of the kingdom, this voice that has been gnawing at him for years, this voice that is, he's tried to keep silent, that he keeps questioning, is there something more? Is this all that there is to life? Am I missing something? And that voice becomes deafening when he hears the message of Jesus and he finally comes to grips with his great need for mercy and he throws himself headlong into the mercy of God. And again, maybe that's you. If you've ever felt like Levi, you've thrown yourself headlong into the mercy of God, this wonderful mercy, never, ever believe. Never, ever let someone else tell you. Never, ever deceive yourself into thinking that the gospel is not for people like you. That the gospel is for people who are better than you. Don't buy into the lies that you're not good enough for the gospel. The morning after, you relapse into sin when you are wondering, why would God love someone like me? How could God possibly still love me? Remember the insurmountable mercy of God. The third group, tax collectors and sinners. You see, I'm not I think it'd be foolish for us to just assume that every single person that was at that party that, that Levi invited followed the exact same path as Levi did. There were undoubtedly people at this group, tax collectors, sinners who didn't mind Jesus. They, they enjoyed his company, but they also had no interest in his cult repentance. They had zero interest in following him and turning to the kingdom of God to leave behind their life. And maybe that's some of us here this morning. We have no issue with the Jesus of this story. He seems like a pretty good guy—a guy, a guy I wouldn't mind to go get a burger with—and yet I'm not going to let him change my life. And if that's you, if you think the message of the gospel is too simplistic, too backward, too outdated, too barbaric, that people don't really think this way anymore, those who are enlightened, consider the gravity of this text. Fourth, the disciples. I mentioned earlier that the disciples here probably were quite uncomfortable with Jesus being in this situation, that Jesus was, was meeting with people like Levi. They were shocked, just like the Pharisees. And, and it's great in theory. I think some of us can say it's, it's great in theory that Jesus would live this way, that he would welcome sinners, he would welcome tax collectors. But it's actually quite shocking in practice when we realize what friend of sinners really means. And this text, for, for those of us who experience that, this text is a calling to repent of our own self-righteousness, to, to live out our calling as fishers of men. It is, a, it is time to, to reflect on how often we spend time with those who want nothing to do with the church, to engage others in a winsome way. Paul, Paul tells us in Ephesians not to have any part in, in the fruitful, fruitless works of darkness, but at the same time, we can't be fishers of men if we're not where the fish are. And so this text is a charge that, that maybe we need to live out a life that looks a lot like Jesus here, following his example. And the fifth category is the scribes of the Pharisees. You see, it is, it is so easy in our culture to conclude that the greatest sin that you could ever commit is the sin of self-righteousness. We live in a culture that says that there's really no such thing as sin except for thinking that you're better than someone else, for, for passing judgment on someone else. And because of that, because of that cultural climate, I would guess that there is no one in here that would openly and consciously be hostile to this notion of Mercy that God is indeed the friend of sinners, that he has got mercy for the wicked that Jesus is showing right here. But at the same time, because self-righteousness so easily creeps into our lives, because it is so insidious, it is so easy for us to give lip service to believing the gospel, to say, yes, I have this great need for Christ, and yet also at the same time, rest on our own strength, rest on our own ability, rest on our own righteousness to make us right before God. It is so easy for us to recognize that, yes, I need the gospel. That, yes, it was a miracle for me to become a Christian. That the Holy Spirit was indeed at work for me to become a Christian. But if I'm being honest, it would take a greater miracle for God to bring them to salvation. And that's self-righteousness at its core. So often we have a tendency to minimize our own sins and maximize the sins of others. Just think back of you had food the last couple days, a meal with family or friends, how often did you have critical thoughts running through your mind of other people? For you to to think, well, that was selfish of them. I really wanted that last piece of pie. Or the the meal's over, and they're sitting and watching TV, and I'm in here cleaning up. Or do they talk about anyone else besides themselves? Or, man, they, they really dominate the conversation. How often do we have critical thoughts run through our mind about other people and yet never once consider the ways we might be falling short? We have a tendency for us to maximize the sin of others and turn a blind eye to our own sin, to blow off our own sin and say it's no big deal. And so perhaps this text is a reminder for us To to look deeply, to be very conscious of the insidious nature of self-righteousness, our ability to see ourselves as better than other people, to see ourselves as less in need of the gospel than other people. You see, the reality of this text is that Jesus came for people like us. And the question is, will we come to him? One of the things I find most shocking about this text is that while it takes place at Levi's home, If you look in verse 15, Levi is not the host. Verse 15 tells us that even though Levi is the one who owns the home, Levi is the one who owns the table, it is actually Jesus who is the host. That Jesus is the one who takes this role of the host. host. That people are now sitting around his table. Levi might own it, but it's Jesus who is the host of this banquet. You might be saying, well, what exactly is the significance of this? That text I read earlier from Isaiah chapter 25 as we began worship this morning uh, is one of of many texts in the Old Testament that point to this great desire of, of the Israelite people for this one day when God's kingdom will finally come. And God's kingdom will finally come with this, and it'll be started with this feast, with this messianic banquet is what they would refer it to, that this deliverance that they had long waited for would start with a feast where the Messiah would sit at a table and everyone who was a part of this kingdom would sit around the table with him, that they would feast with him, that he would carry their burdens, that he would wipe away their tears, that he would be the one who would say death is no more, that the feast of eternity would start. And what we see here. This lounging around the table, this, this longing that the, the Israelite people had for this Messianic banquet, uh, it shapes a great deal of, of thinking for the first century uh, Jewish people. They, they long for this Messianic banquet. The Pharisees actually believed that they could usher it in. They believed that the kingdom of God would come, that God would return for his people, that God would restore his glory here on the earth Through their own morality, if they just lived holy enough lives, if they separated themselves from the wicked, if they lived pure enough, then God would come with his kingdom and it would start with this incredible messianic banquet. But what Mark is doing here, when we get to this text, what Mark is describing here is that yes, the Messiah will indeed host a banquet, that a banquet is indeed coming, but it is not the moral. It is not the self-righteous that are at the table. It's people like Levi. It is people like Levi who are welcome to the Messianic table. Now, this uh, feast is not the, the Messianic banquet itself, but it gives us a foretaste of the banquet that is to come. And here, by including this feast, Mark is telling us that the kingdom of God is for people like Levi. Those who are not rigid rule followers, not those who try to live moral lives as a way to to squeeze God out of the equation, to, to rest on their own righteousness, but instead those who throw themselves on the mercy of God. And as we have seen time and time again in Mark already, that mercy culminates in the cross. Mark is telling us that the kingdom of God has come. That this feast right here is just a foretaste of the feast that is to come. And he's asking us if we're going to sit at the table with him, if we're going to sit at the table with Jesus, because Jesus indeed welcomes us to his great feast. But it's only for those who recognize their great need for mercy. Jesus came for people just like you and me. Won't you join him? Let's pray. God, we confess our great great need for you. We ask for forgiveness for the times where we so often just unconsciously see ourselves as better than others. And we echo the words of the tax collector in the Gospel of Luke, "Have mercy on us, God, a sinner." Thank you for being gracious and merciful for being a God who indeed does not count our sins against us, but makes us white and pure as snow. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.